Okay, so we've been doing Pirkei Aves, um, and we actually did a little bit out of order. We started with Perik Aleph, um, and then we did Perik Dalid, Hey, and Vav. When I say we did it, I mean we focused in on a Mishnah or two of each one of those Prakim as those weeks, which leaves us with Bays and Gimel that we did not discuss yet. So tonight, I want to look at a couple of Mishnayis in Perik Bays, chapter 2 of Pirkei Avos. Um, of course, the custom of the Minig in Kal Yisrael is to do Pirkei Avos between Pesach and Shavuos. And then the Minig by many, Chabad included, is to do it to start over again after Shavuos and do it again and then again and again until Rosh Hashanah. And that's what we do. So this coming Shabbos, we're going to start again Pirkei Aleph. Um, however, we are going to look at chapter 2 of Pirkei Avos. If you're following along from Pirkei Avos, that's great. And if not, that's fine as well. So we'll look for at uh, the first Mishnah of chapter 2, Perig Beis. Um, Rabbi Omer, Rabbi says, um, unique, there's only one person who's called Rabbi Plain. Right? Every sage of the Mishnah was a Rabbi, was a teacher. But the only one who's called Rabbi without any um, name is Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. And he was actually the one who compiled Mishnah, compiled Mishnayis. Um, definitely one of the greatest leaders of Klal Yisrael and one of the greatest sages. Um, very significant, and uh, it's important to note, he didn't just, didn't just compile Mishnayis, he's the one who compiled the first work of the oral tradition, because the oral tradition was oral for uh, well over a thousand years, or 1,500 years, and it was Rabbi who took the initiative to start writing down the oral tradition, and the first sefer was Mishnayis, and then um, that opened up to thousands and thousands of svarim that came afterward. Be that as it may, Rebbe is the one who's quoted at the beginning of Perik Beis, chapter 2. And he says, Rebbe says, Ezehu derech yeshara sheyover lo ha'adam. Which is the right path for a person to choose? Kol shehi tiferes lo iseha, vitiferes loi min ha'adam. That which is honorable to himself and brings him honor from man. That's the first teaching. What's the path one should use? What's a specific path within Torah Mitzvahs to, to choose? He says, that which brings Tiferes honor, beauty for the doer, and honor and beauty amongst people. What is the message of Rebbe? What's he teaching us? And why is it specifically Rebbe who's teaching us this? Right? We've discussed, as we've been learning Pirkei Avos, that the Pirkei Avos is always the teaching and there's the teacher. And typically there's a very clear relationship between the teaching and the teacher. So what is the depth of this teaching and why is it specifically connected to the teacher who's called Rebbe Plain? The Rebbe, the teacher, the Rebbe, the leader. And the Rebbe gives us a very beautiful insight into it, which I want to share. It's actually a short and a simple but beautiful insight. And that is when we talk about Avodah Hashem, serving Hashem, there's typically two um, forms of excelling in Avodah Hashem. There are certain, certain people who do great in their own spiritual growth and their own spiritual perfection or completion or, or ascending from level to level. And they're, they're great. Like they themselves, they're learning, they're davening, their mitzvahs, their performance, everything is just amazing. And that's typically one type of person. And other people are really, really good with others. They're much more into teaching and, and, and communal help and tzedakah and, you know, social stuff. And that's where they excel. And that's typically two types of people. There are those who excel in their own personal avoda between them and Hashem. 
And there are those who excel in their avoda bin adam lechaveru with others. Again, teaching, inspiring, giving tzedakah, helping, being there for others, and so on and so forth. And what Rebbe is telling us here in this Mishnah is that what should one do? Both. That's what he's saying. He's saying that the real path, the ultimate path for one to take is one that's beautiful on both levels. In other words, not to compromise either one of them. Typically, when we focus on one, we somewhat compromise the other. So there are people who are more into their self-growth and they you know, achieve the greatest levels of self-growth. And there are people who are more into being there for others and they achieve wonderful things for others. And what Rabbi is saying here in this Mishnah is that really one should choose the path that's beautiful on both sides. And that's what he says. Tiferes le'oseha, it's beautiful for the person themselves. Vitiferes lo'mina'adam at the same time is beautiful in, in regard to other people as well. And this is why it's connected specifically to Rebbe, because that is really what a Rebbe is. When you think about a Rebbe, you think not a Rebbe is here not just a teacher, but a, a leader of Klal Yisrael, like Rebbe Huda Nasi was. What's a leader of Klal Yisrael? Really one who can't compromise on either one. The leader of Klal Yisrael has to be a tremendous tzaddik and a tremendous Talmud Chacham, and one who excels in their personal avodah. At the same, pl- at the same time, if they're a leader of Klal Yisrael, they have to be entirely devoted to helping and teaching and inspiring and being there for Klal Yisrael. So when you say Rebbe, Rebbe, which connotes that ultimate sense of leadership of Klal Yisrael, the true leader of Klal Yisrael is the consummate bringing the two together. And that's what Rebbe is asking each, of one, each and every one of us as well. Yes, we're not Rebbe. We're not leaders of the entire Klal Yisrael, but yet Rebbe sort of gives us his own, a flavor of his own avodah and says this is something that we have to strive for as well. Not to uh, compromise on one for the other, but to work equally on both personal achievement and growth spiritually, and at the same time not to compromise on being there for others and focusing and helping others as well. And that's the opener of Tiferes Lo Min Ha'adam, Tiferes Lo Oseha, Tiferes Lo Min Ha'adam. I'll just uh, complete this thought with something that Rebbe's great-great-grandfather said in, in chapter... Um, in chapter 1, in, in the previous chapter, um, Rebbe is the seventh generation leader after Hillel. We talked about this in the past, that Hillel, and Hillel is actually going to be mentioned again later this evening, but Hillel became the Nasi, the, the leader of the Jewish people, a hundred years before the destruction of the second base on Mikdash. And Hillel, once he became the leader, leadership stayed in his family for well over 300 years. Um, and, you know, father, son, father, son, father, son. Seventh generation from Hillel is Rebbe, Rebbe Yudah Nasi. And what did Hillel say, going back to chapter 1, Mishnah Yud Dalid, he said, Im ein ani li, mi li. If I'm not going to take care of myself, who will? Mm-hmm. If I'm only focused on myself, ma'ani, what am I? So already Hillel said, expressed this idea of leadership, which is, no one's going to do my job for me. I have to be, I have to work on myself, work on my own growth, work on my own achievement and accomplishment. No one else is going to take, take care of that. One has to be on top of their own avoda at the same time. If I'm only focused on myself, that's no good either. And so his great-great-grandson, Rabbi Yudah in the beginning of this parak, is really mirroring that when he's saying, this is the avoda that each and every one of us should choose as the beautiful, complete avoda for ourselves as well, working both on ourselves as well as being there for others, and one should not detract from the other. 
That's the first idea from the first Mishnah. One more, one more idea, the next, the next statement in the same Mishnah, from the same teacher, Rabbi Yudan Nasi. He says, I'm reading, Be as careful in the performance of a mitzvah kala, a minor mitzvah, as much as a great one, a, str- a strict one, chamura, a stringent one. So that's the next statement. He says, be uh, careful with the easy, small mitzvah, just like a great mitzvah. Both of them, you should have the same zahirus. You should be as careful with both types of mitzvahs, the small ones and the big ones. And here there's an obvious question that comes to mind. And that is, so what is he saying? Is there differences between mitzvahs or are there not? Right, if you think about this statement itself, mm-hmm. when I read someone say this, mitzvah is he saying that there are or are not differences between mitzvahs? He is there saying differences. Some are <laughs> right. considered light. Right, because he, he's not saying um, all mitzvahs are even. He didn't say that. He said there is kala and there is chamura. There is light and there is heavy. But then he says, but I want you to be equally careful in both. But why? If Torah itself is telling me that it's Kala and Chamura, Torah is giving me that indicator that there is Kala, there is Chamura, so then Torah says, yeah, this is a big heavy weight and this is a small one. So, you know, you can put more emphasis, you know, if I have uh, two business ventures and one can, you know, make millions and one can make me a few dollars, so you put more effort and energy into the bigger one. So, so the question is, He's giving us this seemingly almost contradictory statement within itself. Mm-hmm. Again, um, there is light and heavy, there is big and small, but I want you to treat them equally. But why should I if you're telling me that there's big and small? Mm-hmm. And this opens up a very fascinating conversation that I don't want to go into in great um, length, but I want to touch upon it. And that is, when we talk about mitzvahs, and the same things with Averis, but first I'll talk about mitzvahs. There's really two aspects to every single mitzvah. One aspect is a equalizer between all mitzvahs, and one is a differentiator where there's differences between mitzvahs. What's the equal aspect in every single mitzvah, no matter what we do? Whether it's Shabbos, whether it's Kashros, whether it's you know, saying my davening, saying my brachas, washing negavasar. What's the equalizer between every single mitzvah that we do? It comes from Hashem and you're supposed to do it. It's a commandment from Hashem and therefore a way to connect to Him. Mm-hmm. Right? We know the word mitzvah means commandment. And the word mitzvah also has the meaning tzavso, which is a connection. Mm-hmm. When Hashem tells me to do something and I do it for Him, that's a connection between me and Hashem. And when I'm listening to what Hashem told me to do and connecting to Him, it really doesn't matter what He told me. It, the idea is that He told me to do something and I'm connecting to Him. So in the moment when I'm doing a mitzvah, I am connected, period. And in that, every mitzvah is equal. But then there's part two to every mitzvah, which is, what is the practical effect that that mitzvah has on me, on the world around me, Right? Every mitzvah has a certain mission and function. Um, it's written that we have how many mitzvahs? 613. And they're actually connected to 613 parts of our body. Right? It says there's 248 limbs and 365 sinews, whatever that is. Um, so, so the mitzvahs are connected. That means each mitzvah perfects a different part of us. Each mitzvah has a different effect on the world around us. Now, the effect of a mitzvah on ourselves or on the world around us can be very different from one mitzvah to the other. 
Just like our body is made up of 613 parts, although there's 613, but there's differences. You know, some parts, we can do without, if, if need be. Some parts, we can't do without, even for a second, right? So there are differences in the parts of our body, and there's differences in the effect that the mitzvah has on us, and the effects that the mitzvah has on the world around us. So again, let's review. When, you, when I'm doing a mitzvah, there's really two things happening. One is, if I'm doing a mitzvah, I'm creating a connection between me and Hashem. Hashem and me. Why? Because he said to do it, and I listened. Mitzvah, he was mitzvah, he commanded. Tzavsa, and I connected by following that commandment. And there, it really doesn't make a difference what mitzvah. If it's a mitzvah, and I'm doing it for Hashem, I'm connecting to Hashem at this moment, in the most beautiful way. So if it's a harder mitzvah for a person to do, it's not a bigger connection? It's not it, 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 it affects me a lot more. It might purify more of me. It might have a longer lasting effect. But the connection is created because Hashem said to do it and I did it. That's the connector. The connector is he commanded and I did. They're a hard, big, small, easy. doesn't really make a difference. Hashem commanded and I'm doing it. Again, it's effect, and it's surround, uh, you know, what it does to me, and how long it will affect, and how it will change me. That could be very different from one to another, and how much effort I put into it, and how much kavon I had, and so on and so forth, right? By the way, exactly what I said about mitzvahs is true for Averis as well. When you think about Averis, what is an Avera? And again, both of these answers are 100% correct. First and foremost, what's an Avera? I transgressed Hashem's will. Hashem said, don't, and I did it anyway. And the word Avera means transgression. Just like mitzvah means commandment and connection, Avera is a transgression and therefore some level of disconnect. Because Hashem said, and I said no. So at this moment, I disconnected from Hashem. That, in that way, whatever I'm doing in Avera, it's, it's a disconnect from Hashem because I'm going against Hashem's will. It might be one of the chasrashon, very heavy, big Averas, might be a small Avera, but at that moment, I told Hashem, no, I disconnected. But then there is part two, which is, okay, but what kind of effect is that having on you? How difficult is it going to be to clean up that mess? Right? Even though the actual disconnect was that momentary disconnect, but then there's the mess. And that requires cleaning up. And that's a tshuva process. And sometimes that tshuva requires more difficult tshuva. And sometimes there's certain punitive measures that have to be taken in order to cleanse the mess that I created within myself or in the world around me. So that's part two of Averis. So, does Hashem tell us, Hashem doesn't tell us the effect that the mitzvahs have, each one, the small and the big. Well, not typically, but I mean, the more you learn, especially Kabbalistically and Hasidus, there's going to be a lot of talk about that, of what each mitzvah brings into the world and what type of a, you know, light and so on. It's, it's Kabbalistic stuff, but yes, there is a lot of explanation to that. There's an entire sefer of the Samach Tzedek called Derech Mitzvah Secha, where he deals with exactly this. What is the particular meaning and effect of this mitzvah? What is the particular meaning and effect for this Avera? Like so I there know is. That there are certain things that, like if something's bought, hurting a person in their body, different parts. There is something where, like, oh, this means that this could you need to do this. Yeah. Mitzvah. Yes, this means yes, you need yes. To be there is svarim about. There are svarim about that because they do connect the different mitzvahs with different parts of our body and so on and so forth. Yes, yeah. there is. There, that does exist. So all that is part two. But what, what I'm what I'm trying to, to what should be clear to us is. That whenever we think about mitzvahs or averas, we always have to remember there are these two sides to every mitzvah and two sides to every avera. That's why when we make a bracha for a mitzvah, 
The opener is the same for every single mitzvah. Right? Baruch atah Hashem, Elokeinu melech olam, asher kiddushanu b'mitzvosah v'tzivanu. That's the same. That's uniform. Hashem sanctified it with me with a mitzvah and gave me this mitzvah. And it doesn't matter if right now I'm washing for bread or I'm lighting a Shabbos candle or I'm blowing a shofar or I'm eating matzah. But the Baruch HaTah Hashem, 90% of the bracha is the same. And then there is, okay, but then there's this unique mitzvah has a certain unique um, energy, meaning, light, message, and that is the uniqueness of every mitzvah. So once we understand that, well, now this mitzvah, now this Mishnah is, shines in a different way. What is he telling us? He's saying, yes, on the one hand, there's kala v'chamura. Because on the one hand, one mitzvah is more weighty in its effect, in what it accomplishes, in how uh, encompassing it is. So there is kala and chamura. There's lighter and heavier. But we should be most excited about the fact that we're connecting to Hashem. And that, there's no difference. Does Hashem tell us which ones are kal and which ones are Yeah, yeah. I mean, we know, for example, the Shabbos yeah. is a much more significant. Take, for, for example, one of the easiest ways is when you look at the punishments in the Torah. If a person desecrates the Shabbos, that's a capital offense. If a person doesn't make a bracha on food, it's not at all. Right? Desecrating Shabbos, is, there's so many mitzvahs. Any of them? Any. A chilol Shabbos is considered a capital offense in Yiddishkeit. Now, there are the mitzvahs that are considered the, the much more powerful and require much greater teshuva than others. There is those differences. And we're able to see them from, from basic halacha sometimes. Right? Not always, but we can. So again, what this mission is telling us is, yes, when you talk about the effect side, the, um, you know, what the, the specific unique energies of mitzvahs, there's going to be differences. But we should have the approach of focusing on the essence of a mitzvah, and that is that I'm connecting to Hashem. And there, have yizarb mitzvah kala kechamura, because once I understand that, it, as far as connecting to Hashem, anytime I'm listening to Hashem, I am making that connection, and therefore they should all be equally exciting and inspiring to me to devote myself to. So that's how, um, especially in Hasidic um, understanding, they understand the two seemingly opposite messages in that same statement, in that same quote, because yes, they're both true. There is the individuality and therefore differences and that creates the heavier and lighter and yet there's the common denominator of connection to Hashem versus chas v'shalom, disconnect and that's where they're all even. Well, he says straight out, you don't know what a reward you're going to get. It sounds like the schar might not depend on how high the mitzvah is. He says straight out here, you don't know. Right. So he says, you don't know the... Right, right. But then he goes on. But then, then he goes on to the next step and says, Have mechashiv schar mitzvah keneged hafseidah because you know the onshim. In other words, there's onshim for mitzvahs and there the punishments are different. And he says, you can figure out the power of a certain mitzvah based on the onish for that mitzvah. The power so, or the reward? The re- you can figure out the greatness of reward from the onish. Onish meaning what? If you don't do it? Right, onish? right. Again, let's talk about Shabbos. Okay. Shabbos has the greatest level of onish. Of okay. punishment. So therefore, one can understand that when they fulfill Shabbos, there must be a tremendous schar for it. So there is a way of working out that, well, if Taurus takes this so seriously, clearly the schar is going to be, you know, tremendous schar as well. But that's all in part two of the mitzvahs and averis. Versus the essence of the mitzvah is what's written elsewhere in Pirkei Yavis. What's the essence, what's the greatest reward for a mitzvah? It's a schar mitzvah, yes. mitzvah, which means the reward of the mitzvah is connecting to Hashem. Greater than any other reward that I might ever get is the actual connection created. And that's the equalizer.
So again, we go back and forth between the equalizer versus the difference. But it sounds like it sounds like we're just concerned with the reward. Well, you're Be careful because you don't know what kind of reward. Right. You're so, get. so is the reward connection. Yes. Oh, that's so. Really so, well, I said yes too both. fast. Both, right? There is the individual reward for that particular mitzvah, but the greater, the ultimate reward is har mitzvah mitzvah, which means the connection that it affords me with Hashem, and that that's again that's the two parts of the story. The individuality of the mitzvah carries its specific benefit and its specific thing that it does for me and helps me with and so on and so forth. The essence of the mitzvah is that connection. And what, what he's telling us, what Rebbe is telling us in this Mishnah, is though that, yes, when you think about the individualities, there's going to be difference. N- differences. Nevertheless, when you think about the essence of it, it's that connection to Hashem or that disconnect from Hashem as well. In fact, this becomes in, uh, in, in Tanya, it's a very central theme. Excuse me. When he talks in the first chapter, is about how a person could hold themselves back from doing any Avera. It's an important section of Tanya that I'm not going to try to say in three minutes, but just to mention it. The Altarebbe spends a few chapters on the subject of what should hold a person back from doing any Avera whatsoever. His answer is to remember that I would go on Mesiris Nefesh, right? Not to do Avodazara. It sounds a little extreme. Avodazara is Avodazara, but we're talking about, yeah, we're talking about the small change, you know, a little Lashonara here and there, you know. But, but the Altarebbe's point is that the essence of an Avera is the disconnect. And the differences that we attribute, to, attribute between Averis is secondary. And it's really this idea that we're talking about here. He's very into it. That remember, the essence of an Avera, no matter what, is one thing. That at this moment, I'm disconnecting from Hashem. On that level, it doesn't matter if it's Shabbos, if it's Avodah Zarah, if it's Lashon Hara, if it's Brachas. Because at that moment, Hashem afforded me a connection and I'm, I'm disconnecting. And on that level, that's the equalizer. Again, in Averis, as well as in Mitzvahs, and that's the point he's making here. Okay, so let's leave that for here, but that's the second idea in this first teaching, or the first Mishnah of Rebbe. Okay, I want to give a look at a later Mishnah. Again, tonight I want to run through a couple. And I want to look at Mishnah Gimel, Mishnah 3. Havu zehirin barashus. Be weary of those in power. Shein, which typically is, typically is understood to mean government, right? Shein mikarvin lo adam ela letzorich atzman. They befriend a person only for their own benefit. Nirin ka'ayavin b'shas hana asan. They seem to be friends when it is to their advantage. Vein omdin lo adam b'shas dachko, but they do not stand by a person, a man, in the hour of need. How true. How true. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> so... For politicians. <laughs> so, but here's the interesting question. Now, say, again, we read that Mishnah and everyone sort of smiles, right? We know that, right? We know that. The people in power, they're our good friends when it's good for them and when it right. works out. But when we need them, suddenly um, they don't remember our phone number or anything else, right? right. Which is wonderful. But what's it doing in Pirkei <laughs> Because how is this good Jewish ethics? How is this, especially when we talked about Pirkei being about no, it's like, this is like good advice. It's like, you know, a parent telling a child, it's, it's good business advice, it's good life advice. But Pirkei is not typically seen as a, a, a safer for good advice. 
I mean, it's this is to help us be better Yidin and be more uh, scrupulous and beyond the letter of the law, Lefnim Mishuras Hadin. Again, this sounds much more like a solid business life advice than anything else. How do we understand this in understanding a, a significant message in our personal Avodah Hashem, and especially if we're talking about Lefnim Mishuras Hadin, beyond the letter of the law? And that's an interesting question that the Rebbe once posed by a talk. And I want to give over, he spoke about it at length, but I want to give over a point. I said the following. When we, it doesn't say actually the word government. It says, Bereshus is those in power. So, and we right away think government or other powerful uh, people or whatever. But really there's a personal and internal way we could translate this Mishnah as well. And that is, who is the government within ourselves? Who is our own personal government? My mind and my heart, right? My mind is my seichel, my intellect that helps me make decisions. And my heart is my emotion, what I feel about things. And we, as human beings, are hopefully governed by our mind and heart, right? Um, in fact, that's a, that's a good thing. When a person is not governed by their mind and they just do whatever they want and don't think about it, it's no good. So really, a, an intellectual person and a person who is a moral person, and they have to make decisions, so what do we do? We think about them. And we, we think about decisions in order to decide what to do, mm-hmm. Set, which is a good thing. <laughs> but we got to be careful. Because even though we're thinking, sometimes our thoughts could be um, self-serving. Mm-hmm. We can be uh, biased. So I think I'm making the right decision, I thought it through, and yeah, this sounds like the right decision. But is it really the truly right decision by Hashem and by fulfilling Hashem's ruts and fulfilling Hashem's will? And here, we have to be weary even of our own decision-making process. So it doesn't say, don't listen, because we have to use our mind. We're obligated to use our mind. It's Hashem's greatest gift to us. But we have to be weary, because... We have to second guess. So why am I making this decision? Is it really because this is the MS of what Hashem wants for me and this is the right decision? Or is it because this is convenient for me at the time and I'm using my mind as a vehicle to explain to myself why I should get what I want? Mm-hmm. Right? Because we do that also, as we know. Mm-hmm. So that's what Hebuzahir and Bereshus means. And sometimes even when we're making spiritual cheshbonus, like it seems like that, that, yeah, this is, this is the right thing to do. Right is sometimes confusing. And what feels right and sounds right is not always right either. And that's where things get confusing. And that's why we're told, and something that we learned actually in Perik Aleph, I think the first week around, about Asay Lecharav, about having someone that we discuss things with, and Kinei Lechachov, or having good friends, because it's all about bias. That whenever we're dealing with it and figuring it out on our own, even if we think we're making proper decisions, it's not always so. And that's why we have to be able to look outside of ourselves and second-guess ourselves and hear from someone else also, to be, especially when we're talking about significant decisions, to make sure that we're, we're attacking going in the right direction. So that Havu Zahirin Bereshus, 
Um, I'm sure it has its simple meaning as well, but on a deeper and more Avedas Hashem level, not just good advice level, it's talking about Havuzi here in our own Rishos, our own government, their own, their own government post that Hashem gave us to use, but still, we have to be careful to know if my mind is telling me that because it's for the benefit of my mind. Um, and it's, uh, it's tricky. How about and, the last part, though? What, what, how would that work in a personal way? Where our minds and our hearts don't stand by us when we're just in the... Right, house. at the end of the day, you know, my mind told me what to do because it, it felt good for it, but at the end of the day, spiritually speaking, when push comes to shove, it's really not good for me. And then the whole intellect is just not there anymore. It was used as a tool for me to get something that I wanted, Mm-hmm. But then at the end, when that may have led me to a path where I don't belong, it's not going to help me, right? It was only a tool to reach something which wasn't really there for my ultimate benefit. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that sometimes, even sometimes even when it comes to um, Avodah Hashem, and we make decisions, and sometimes we're... Um, we, we have the ability to make an even higher level decision than we made. Now, there's sometimes we can do like a Mesiras Nefesh act that even regular sound Torah logic doesn't require. But sometimes we're, our Nishama tells us to go beyond it and go beyond what logic would require from us to do. Um, being vague, let, let me explain. For example, for a simple example, um, Communist Russia, um, 70, 80, 90 years ago, right? So you have the previous Rebbe there with the Hasidim, and the communists come down against Yiddishkeit, right? So someone can make a, you know, a logical conclusion, and many people did, like, okay, I'm not going to fight communist Russia, right? So I'll hunker down in my house, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do what I can, I'll dive in, I'll enter, and that's it. But I can't go out and try to fight the government, which is a huge, powerful world power and so on and so forth, and perhaps get killed and exiled and so on and so forth, right? So if one makes that cheshbon, is that a wrong cheshbon? Mm-hmm. No, it's logical, even from a Kedusha perspective, it's logical. Came the, the Friedrich Rebbe, Rabbi Yitzchak, and he told his Hasidim, no, this is not a time for logic. This is a time to go on Messias Nefesh for Yiddishkeit. And he sent his Hasidim to make the Chadorim and the Mikvois and the Shuls, as we know, there's so many books written about that era of time, and many of them were killed. And many of them were in Siberia for who knows how many years and so on and so forth. So sometimes it's not even, even the logical way of thinking through things from a Torah perspective mm-hmm. might lead me to take a more cautious approach and not go on that, you know, Mesiris Nefesh, Lefnimishurus and But this is Pirkei Avos, which is Lefnimishurus and beyond the letter of the law. And he says, even the log- good logic, positive logic, is not always the right, the most true logic. <laughs> It's not the purest logic. And that's where you have to be Zahiran. Because it's, it's, again, it's tricky. We're not talking about clear good and bad. Clear good and bad is easy. Well, not easy, but easier. I feel like it's also a balance because you it's want a, a balance. balance. Because you want, um, the Abishter gives us kaychas to be able to make decisions and, mm-hmm. and to be confident in our decisions and not to always be, oh, did I do, should I do this? Should I not do this? Like, you don't want to be wishy-washy. Right. So, you want to have that confidence and like, you know, you say, go with your gut feeling and you know yourself. And, and if you learn, you, you have an idea of what's right to do. But then there are times that you have to go to a mashbi and to a right. rub. Right. So we, there is that balance. And, and therefore, I'm saying, he doesn't say don't listen to right. the rishos. He says, be careful. Right. 
Hevu's a hero. Zahiru doesn't mean throw it out. Like, okay, I'm not thinking anymore. I'm done, right? right? No, no, we're meant to use our mind and we're meant to use our heart and we have our moral compass, which is important. And yet, we have to be cautious. We have to be aware. We have to understand not always what sounds and feels right is the right thing and therefore, we have to just be cautious. And that's how he explains that Mishnah. So, Let's move on. I'm sorry. It, it's so neat that it's like a whole different take on the Mishnah. <laughs> like we just looked at it as politicians, you know, or like people in authority. And, and it's like, it's such a deeper... It's I, bringing it home. It's, it's making yeah. it internal and, and real in my Avedis Hashem, not yeah. just a good piece of advice, 100%. 100%. Okay, let's give a look at Mishnah Vav. And here's a, this is an interesting one. Here we'll take it. If you thought that was unusual, this is going to be a really unusual spin. Okay, the one talking is Hillel, who already started talking in Mishnah Gimel. Um, But Mishnah Vav is a continuation, and he says, Hillel was walking. Here it's Vav, is by Yuzayin. Afu right, yeah. which is not a problem. Yes, they're, 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 right, there are different girsaos in Mishnah okay. of how they're split up. Right, so I'm following the Chabad Siddur, okay. and this was by the Alter Rebbe who split up I'm the Mishnah in that way, which is <laughs> perfectly fine. That's my girsa. Perfectly fine. In fact, it's, 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 it's an interesting point that you're making, which is the Pirkei Avos is printed in the Siddur. The Alter Rebbe printed in the Siddur. The question is why? I mean, just because you see it on Shabbos, you pull out on Mishnayis, you know, on Shabbos you lean, you don't have to have leaning in the sitter. The reason he put the big Yavis in the sitter is because he wanted us to know his Nusach, what he felt is the right Nusach. Oh. Right, so he, he actually, the Alter Rebbe wrote, wrote his Nusach of sitter and his Nusach of Pirkei and the way of splitting up the Mishnayis because there are different Nuschos. Okay, Mishnavah. So Hillel Hazakin is walking along the street and, he's, well, and he comes by a stream of water. And guess what he sees? A skull. Hillel sees a skull in the water, floating in the water. Omar lo, he turns to the skull and tells it, Because you drowned others, um, that's why you were drowned. Ultimately, those who drowned you will themselves be drowned. That's the Mishnah. So Hillel Hazakin seems to be telling us a basic concept of, of, of retribution, of schar ve'onish, and of mida keneged mida. We have this concept, what, you, you know, what, what goes around comes around, basically. He says, so this, this you know, you, you're, you're obviously drowned, that's why there's a skull in the water, someone was killed in the water, died in the water, and it's because you drowned others, but ultimately those who drowned you will be drowned as well. That's the teaching on a simple level, and it's, it's true for its simplicity for a simple level comes the Arizal and gives us a whole different picture as to what's going on here. He doesn't argue with any of the facts. He's just giving us perspective. And he says the following. What you're seeing here is a much deeper discussion than Hillel Hazakin and a skull that happened to float by. Rather, says he, this skull, says the Arizal, was the skull of Paro. Paro Melech Mitzrayim. That somehow wound up, we're talking about a long time after Mitzrayim, if it's, you know, if Hillel Hazakin is seeing this, right? Definitely more than a thousand years, right? Now, Hillel, that Rizal says, is had within himself a part of his neshama that came directly from Moshe Rabbeinu. He says, the Nitzutz, he was a spark of Moshe Rabbeinu's neshama, which explains a lot of things about Hillel that make him very, very similar to Moshe Rabbeinu. First, some practical stuff. Hillel lived to 120 years, the Gemara says, just like Moshe Rabbeinu lived to 120 years. 
Hillel's most famous trait that he was known for, he was called Hillel the Anav, the humble one. There's so many stories in the Gemara describing Hillel's level of humility. Moshe Rabbeinu's greatest trait was humility, right? Hillel, as I mentioned earlier, was the ultimate Nasi, a leader of all Kali Yisrael, and leadership remained in his family for hundreds of years. So Hillel was a symbol of Jewish leadership, Moshe Rabbeinu. So Hillel, the Arizal says, is really Moshe Rabbeinu's reincarnation here in this world at that time. And Hillel is now meeting Paro, which is Moshe Rabbeinu's arch enemy. And Hillel turns to the skull and says, Paro, you know why you've been drowned? Remember Mitzrayim? What did you do to the Jewish kids? Mm-hmm. Right? So it's not just, oh, you drowned someone and you were drowned. He says, this is Moshe Rabbeinu coming down again, turning to Paro and showing Paro Hashem's long arm, if you will. That yes, you drowned the children in Mitzrayim, and, and that's, that's why you were drowned. And then, the Rizal says, the last three words, the sof mitayfayich yutufun, which literally reads, he's talking to the skull, that those who drowned you will be drowned, the Rizal reads it differently. That no, now Hillel turns to Klal Yisrael, and says, just like Paro, who drowned the Jewish children, was drowned, the same as all of your enemies who try to drown you in so many different ways, they'll be drowned as well. Mm-hmm. Just as you see Paro's retribution, that at, at his time he was, he was the, uh, the monarch, the superpower of the world, and yet because of his evil and wicked ways of drowning the Jewish children and trying to destroy the Jewish people. So Paro himself was destroyed, we will also see that retribution of all those who try to destroy Kali Yisrael. That's how the Rizal explains this Mishnah, which, which is a powerful Mishnah, but it's also there to give us chizuk. Because sometimes we feel downtrodden. I mean, so many enemies and so many tsarists and throughout history, and if you just think for two minutes about the Holocaust and about the communists and about the Inquisition, it goes on and on, and the list is, is never ending. Oppressed, 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 oppressed. So Hillel is giving us a message for all time. He says, Hashem has a longer, you know, a bigger picture. And Paro Melech Mitzrayim was Paro Melech Mitzrayim, who was, the, was called the Gemara calls in the Moshe Bekipa. He was the most powerful person in the world. But he, he, found, his, he found his moment, he found his, his, his onish. And the same, Hillel says, is for all those who try to drown us, all those who try to destroy us, and therefore you should be strengthened in their avoda. and though many times we are beset by, by evil or wicked people, to know that Hashem knows exactly who and what and when and everything will find its right place as Hashem saw to it in that story of power. And that's how the Arizal explains and in Yisrael and everywhere. Right? Okay, I want to learn with you one more concept. And that is in Mishnah Yud Dalet, Mishnah 14, at least in this one. And that starts with the words Rabbi Elazar Omer. Which Mishnah starts Rabbi Elazar Omer by you? Is it Rabbi Elazar Omer Leibra? No. No, later than that. Have Shakud, yes. Rabbi Rabbi Elazar Omer Have Shakud Lilmod Torah. Oh, Yutas. Yutas. Okay. Wow. Oh, gosh, you have so much more to learn. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a question of how they're split up I the Mishnah. Okay. So here we have and, and what I'm gonna say now is gonna be a little bit of a heavy concept, but an important concept to know. And that is a big part of this chapter. Really, it starts all the way back by Mishnah 9 and goes to almost, really, yeah, 
Mishnah test and goes to almost the end of the chapter is the five disciples of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Right? You have the Mishnah introduces us in Mishnah 9 to five disciples mm-hmm. of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Um, and they're Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanesh, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanani, Rabbi Yossi Akoin, Rabbi Shimon ben Nisanel, and Rabbi Lazar ben Aruch. And in the, in the chapter, first it talks about these, the unique qualities of each one of them. And then it gives a teaching from each one of them. Uh, a couple of teachings from each one of them, actually. And that it really takes up like um, about 10 Mishnas, or almost 10 Mishnas. Um, the, the story of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and his five great disciples. Now let's remember, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was an extremely important person in the history of Kal Yisrael because he lived at a very, very pivotal time. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is the leader of the Jewish people during the destruction of the second base on Mikdash. In fact, there's the famous story, he smuggled out of the walls of Yerushalayim. When Yerushalayim is in siege, he smuggled out in a coffin as if he's dead. And he goes to meet the Roman emperor, right? And that's, or the Roman general, Vespasian. And um, he's able to secure that he allows them to open a new center of Torah study in Yavne. Right? That's Rabbi Yochanan Mezake. So he really, really, he was the one who's credited of creating the continuation of Torah learning and Torah leadership after the destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash. Now, but he had these five great disciples that the Mishnah, again, that this chapter talks about, five great disciples. And in the orders, it starts with Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus, Rabbi Eliezer, then Rabbi Yeshua, and the final one is Rabbi Elazar ben Aruch. Now, in the Mishnahs, actually, it says that although all five were great, first it says that the greatest one was the first, which was Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus, and according to others, the greatest one was the fifth, which was Rabbi Elazar ben Aruch. There's the two... There's two ways of looking at it. Um, each one is credited with a different level of greatness in Torah. Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanah says is like this iron, um, was it, what is it, a cistern or something? The iron pit that doesn't uh, lose anything. Or Exactly. So how is that translated? It's like a cemented pool that does not lose a draft of water. Okay. That's Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanah, which means he never lost any Torah. Everything that he learned from his teachers, he always contained. Tremendous, phenomenal, Rabbi, in, in, in Gemara many times he's called Rabbi Eliezer HaGadol, the great Rabbi Eliezer. And he was just this tremendous, so in some ways he was the most awesome of the five students of Rabbi Yochanan Mezakai. Then you have the fifth one, which was Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. Now, it's very easy to, uh, to confuse Rabbi Eliezer and Elazar, but it's different. So the first one is Eliezer. And he's that iron pool that doesn't drop, lose a drop. And then you have Rabbi Elazar ben Arach that it says about him is Kimayon Hamnesgaber, like a wellspring that's always uh, flowing and strengthening itself with more and more water, more and more Torah knowledge, and more and more Torah ideas. These were the two greatest of the five. Now, although these are the two greatest of the five, something very strange happens in Torah history. And that is, throughout the Talmud, the first one, Rabbi Eliezer, and the second one, you know, there's one right after, which is Rabbi Yeshua, are mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times. Their teachings and stories about them. They were the um, successors to Rabbi Yochanan Mazaka. When Rabbi Yochanan Mazaka passes away, you have Rabbi Eliezer and you have Rabbi Yeshua. They're always mentioned. The fifth one, which is Rabbi Elazar ben Aruch, is almost never mentioned. He like got lost. And here in the Mishnah it says that he was the greatest, right? He was, either he was the greatest or he was the greatest. But this Rebbe Elazar ben Aruch 
And like after this Mishnah, you don't hear about him. And the question is, what happened? Where did he go? Right? If he's again, I'm, I'm being clear. Rabbi Yochanan has these five great students. The first and the fifth are the giants amongst them. Yet the first is continuously heard about and read about and talked. And the fifth just is, it just seems to fall off the face of of the Talmud. And the third and fourth. Yeah. The, so the third and fourth are there, but you know not as much. But they're around. You know, you hear them. Yeah, they didn't disappear. Okay. The, the first two became the successors. Rabbi Yezer, Rabbi Yehoshua. The next two, you hear them on occasion. But the fifth is like he's gone. And again, the fifth, it said about him that he was greater than all of them. So what happened? And what happened is a very sad story. Mm-hmm. And the story is the following. Um, it says that when the yeshiva, as I said earlier, the, the center of, of Torah study was Yerushalayim. And after the destruction of the Besamekdash, so there was a new center of Torah study, and that was going to be in Yavna. And that's where the yeshiva was relocated, and that's where the Nasi was, and that was, became the Torah center after Jerusalem, after the destruction of Yerushalayim. So Elazar ben Arach was, was going to go to Yavna. Mrs. Elazar ben Arach said, I don't like Yavna. I don't like Yavna? I don't like Yavna. It's not a nice place to live. Mm-hmm. There's nice places out there. And the Gemara talks about a certain place, she said, that there's, there's good springs and there's good wine and it's a great place. Mm-hmm. And Rabbi said, yeah, but that's the center of Torah study. Mm-hmm. And she said, you are the greatest Torah scholar in the world. You don't need a center of Torah study. You're Rabbi Yochanan Mazaka's greatest student. You're good. It's fine. We don't have to go live in Yavna. We can live in a nicer place. Right, wherever it is. <laughs> you know, I didn't say right. Whatever. You, you can draw your own conclusions. Anyhow, and they went, and he went, and they went to this place. He listened to his wife. He listened to his wife. Worst, right? The worst. We'll talk about this in a minute. Um, and he, he went there, and it was a place of materialism. And it says, slowly but surely, he forgot everything. To the extent, in the Gemara, it's the Gemara in Talmud Yerushalmi, to the extent it says that one time they called him up for an aliyah to the Torah. Now, in the olden days, when you got called up to an aliyah to the Torah, you read that section. Mm-hmm. Right? That's not the way it is now. Now there's one reader. You call up, you say a bracha, and the reader reads, a balkari, right? Mm-hmm. But in the olden days, and even today, especially in certain Yemenite communities, they still do it, that when you get your aliyah, you read. Now, there's a very simple reason why most people don't do that, because most people don't know how to read, right? You really have to learn the entire Torah to do that, which they do in Yemenite circles till today. As a little child, that's what they drill, they, they grill them on it. They drill it till they know the whole Torah to be able to read it. But in the olden days, that's how everyone did it. You got an aliyah, you call him. They called him up, and he, made, he couldn't really read the words properly. It says in the Gemara, that they called him up in the aliyah, where it says, HaChodesh Hazeh Lachem, Rosh Chadashim. Mm-hmm. But instead of Hachodesh Hazelachem, he read each word wrong. Hachodesh, he read Hacheresh. In other words, the Resh, he changed for a Dalit. Uh, the Dalit to a Resh. Hazehoya, the Zayin, he read like a Yud. Lachem, he read Libam. The Chaf was a base. But think about the words he said. Hacheresh Hoya Libam, that his heart had become like clay. like clay and he couldn't hear. He couldn't, uh, take. In other words, his, this greatest of scholars, because of, because of instead of going to where Torah was centered and just deciding to take it easier and having more of a pleasurable life, 
lost all of his Torah knowledge. It says that his chaverim, his friends, heard about all this and they came back and they were makar of him and he, 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 came, he got, came back, but he never regained that level or position in Klal Yisrael. So really, this story is like, in, in, in Gemara, there's two women who the Gemara talks about who had a tremendous effect on their husbands as far as the Torah study. There was Ra- Rachel, Rabbi Akiva's oh, wife. No, I'm talking about in Gemara, in, in the sages of the Jewish. Rachel created the greatest sage of the Jewish people of his time. And that was Rabbi Akiva, right? You know the story that Rabbi Akiva was a shepherd boy, he was a total ignoramus, and she saw this potential in him that nobody even fathomed, and she was able to send him away, and, and he became Rabbi Akiva, the leader of his time, without any question, and really all Mishnah is really based on his. So she's credited with all greatness of Rabbi Akiva, and this lady like did the exact opposite. But notice, both of these are stories of power in their, in, in their effect on their particular husbands. But this is what happened to Rabbi Lazar ben Aruch. That, so Rabbi Lazarus in our Mishnah is like, wow, he's the greatest of the five disciples, but without the proper commitment, um, he didn't keep it. It didn't, it, didn't, it didn't stay. And it's interesting, what does he say in Mishnah Yudalit? Have a shakud Torah, be diligent in the study of Torah. In other words, you can never be, well, I know it already because I learned it and I know it, I'm knowledgeable, I'm such a great... It's a, it's, a, it's a lifelong quest to be diligent. And in fact, in fact, it's interesting, there's a statement later, I'll just finish with this, in Perik Dalid, Mish, Mishnah Yud Dalid, if, if you're looking, if not, it's fine, but Perik Dalid, Mishnah Yud Dalid, there's a statement that reads the following, Rebbe Nehorai Omer, Rebbe Nehorai says, Exile yourself to a place of Torah. Do not assume that it will come after you. It's your colleagues who will, who will cause it to be established by you. Do not rely on your own understanding. Rebbe Yeroi says, go to a place of Torah. Never rely, I know enough, I understand enough, I can do it on my own. No, no, you need to have friends, you need to have a community, a place of Torah, a place of, a place of, of learning Torah. According to Mepharshim, that Rebbe Nehoroi is a code name. It wasn't Rebbe Nehoroi. That was Rebbe Lazar ben Arach talking. And he says, I know this, firsthand. He says, never rely on where you're at. You need to have you need to be in a good place and you need to be surrounded with good people and they'll see to it that the Torah that you learn um, will, be, will be kept by you and will not be lost from you. So they say the word Nehoroi means that he came to that light, to that realization. So he's called the Rabbi Nehoroi, but really it's Rabbi Lazar ben Arach who says that I made that mistake and he's telling us, don't make that mistake. He says a person so, has to... It's so extreme. Right, right, right. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, very it's, it's very, very extreme. Right, right. Well, we're talking about much greater people than average, so things are much more extreme there, it would seem. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was from him who was expected, no, to continue that level of diligence and studying, and for him to take the other direction, he probably dipped a lot more than a regular yeah. person would, I would say so. What was the wife's name? We don't know. Oh. <laughs> it's probably a good thing. <laughs> Worried about anyone that would need it, but I don't think.